the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. here on the Thursday, November the 15th edition of Lifeline. Welcome to you. I happen to come down the hallway here after getting a little reload on tea for tonight's program and thought to myself, gee, it's getting dark a lot earlier out there. And then I realized, yeah, and a big part of that darkness is smoke. It's amazing, isn't it? Hope you're trying to stay indoors and uh, do the best to protect your lungs. We're seeing some of the worst air in certainly Northern California in my entire life here, and I've been here a long time. A lot to, a lot to be concerned about, to be sure. You're familiar, perhaps, with the Matthew 24, 6 through 14 passage. I'll paraphrase here. It speaks of wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You'll be handed over to be persecuted and even put to death. The passage speaks to biblical prophecy and end times. Some right now, though, are thinking, wait, what? Wasn't that in the news just yesterday? Or, gee, that seems to describe what's going on in my life right now. These are indeed perilous times in which we live. We know that Scripture tells us that it rains on the just and unjust. And in the midst of the storm, including fires, how do we go about in these perilous times? Or when you're being buffeted right and left seemingly endlessly, how do you find refuge in God? Or are you the type that just stays home and hides underneath the bedsheets? We, we have available to us an opportunity to take cover, not to hide and cower, but rather to find peace in God's protection. A timely talk, a, bit, a timely conversation in light of what's going on here in Northern California with the fires right now. Joining me, a very special guest, certainly a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He can be heard each Monday through Friday at 12.30 p.m., As speaker on Know the Truth broadcast, he is the pastor of Kindred Community Church and the author of a new book called Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection. Pastor Philip DeCourcy, great to have you back with us. Well, it's great to be on your show, uh, Craig, and uh, certainly those of us in Southern California are uh, certainly praying for you guys in Northern California as we deal with another set of fires. Yes, indeed. Now, well, you're located there in what Anaheim Hills, so that that's some distance away from the Woolsey Fire, isn't it? Yeah. Although we had our turn just uh, just over a year ago, uh, there was a large fire in our area and actually threatened our church property. Uh, but God and His goodness uh, spurred uh, spurred us. But yeah, right now we're escaping it. It's up in the Malibu area, kind of uh, you know, west north of of L.A. 
but uh, I think we all know we all we all eventually get our turn at this, sadly. Yeah, sadly so. And of course, when we couple this sort of a, the collective experience of the fires right now in California, there are also many events that come along in life independently when we are facing uh, spiritual warfare, perhaps in our life that can take place in a lot of forms and a lot of fashions. And I always find it interesting because there's a brand of Christianity out there that seems to suggest that we should never go through these things, that in fact, when perilous times are visited upon us, there must be something wrong with our prayer life or our walk with God. And yet, while certainly the Bible warns us against um, being fearful and living in fear, um, there there is a place for pain and suffering in, in the Christian walk, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, look, the reality is um, when we get saved, when we come to faith in Christ, God God doesn't wrap us in bubble wrap. There's no promise that I can see in the Bible that uh, our faith in Christ is is a kind of get-out-of-jail card mm. in terms of troubles and trials. In fact, I think it's the opposite. You know, it's almost when you become a Christian, it's double trouble. Uh, in the one hand, we, along with our fellow citizens and our neighbors, we face the same challenges everybody faces, from natural disasters to our own mortality. Uh, with, with only a step between us and death, uh, illness, financial reversal, all of that is, is just part and parcel of the human experience. But then the Christians double trouble in that repentance has us turning around and uh, swimming upstream, uh, bearing a cross, uh, preaching an exclusive gospel, and not everybody likes that or, or, or is happy to let that be the case. And so you know, we uh, have to deal with uh, the world that's at enmity with God, and if we are uh, followers of Jesus Christ, he told us, didn't he, in John 15, that if they hated me, they will hate you. So I, I know that there are those who preach health and wealth, but I think that's, to be honest, a false premise, a false gospel. If anything, the Christian has double trouble, and yet the beauty is, and that's what this book is about, Hey, uh, there, there's sufficient grace. There's there's a place to take cover. There's a peace that passes all understanding. Um, we have got God's presence within uh, to help us deal with the trials and the troubles that come to every doorstep, but especially to the homes of Christians. I've always been fascinated when I've had opportunities, Pastor DeCourcy, to travel overseas to countries that are uniquely known for the degree of institutionalized or government-level persecution against Christians. And when traveling with fellow Christian broadcasters, oftentimes we've been very caught up, very mesmerized by stories of persecution and what people have been through for their faith, and we seem to be drawn into all of that, and yet it's odd to note from the uniquely Christian uh, Western Christian perspective, how we look at this with amazement, and yet from their perspective, from, I think, a, a Book of Acts perspective, quite frankly, or a first century church perspective, they, they don't get all wrapped up in that because they see this as part of normative Christianity. I mean, Scripture does tell us that we will be persecuted for his name's sake, and yet for a lot of Christians in the West, that's not been part of our experience, so we don't really understand what all of that means. And then when a little trouble does come our way in whatever form or fashion that might be, uh, suddenly we get panicked and think somehow God has abandoned us. Uh, it's, a, it's a great point. And, and, and to be honest, it, it's embarrassing, isn't it? It kind of, our, uh, 
reaction sometimes to the trials of life or even to a little bit of persecution or what we might call soft persecution, mockery, uh, that is certainly increasing in our own country. You know, we, 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 we almost fall over and surrender in the face of that, and that's to our embarrassment, because you're right. I mean, persecution's the norm. We're the exception. And look, by the way, we thank God for that. You know, I, 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 the, the Bible doesn't encourage me to run into a buzzsaw, and and you know we are, we're enjoying the legacy of of a of a constitution uh, written by its framers that had a a, a God consciousness, and, and and certainly there was an understanding of of protecting religious liberty. I thank God for that. Uh, I certainly don't unnecessarily want to throw that away, and we've enjoyed that in the West. And I, the ill winds are blowing in a different direction, and, and, and perhaps there, there, there are coming days uh, for us. But as our brothers and sisters teach us across the world, you know, God is a refuge and, 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 a, and a, a strength and a very present help in time of trouble. I mean, the implication of the story of Daniel is, you know, as, as his three friends are put into the furnace, there was that fourth person like unto the Son of God. And that story, well, isn't always repeatable because that was miraculous. The message is that God's people are never alone in, in the problems of life and the persecution of the church. And that's the thesis of this book, that, hey, you know, we can take cover. And, and by the way, God is a refuge not from life. Uh, I think we mistake that verse sometimes. Well, the refuge isn't to pamper us, but to prepare us to stand in the evil day, to give us the grace necessary in our weakness to be strong. And so God's our refuge, not from life, but he supplies power and grace and steadfastness to stand up. We can't, you know, Psalm 55, we, we do wish, don't we, sometimes with the wings of a dove that we might fly away, but that's not realistic. Uh, trouble waits you wherever you go because you're part of the trouble. Now, the promise of Psalm 55 is cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. That's sustain you under the burden and in the midst of your problems. And so, you know, that, that, this book is, is to that end. Hey, we've, we've got to find our security and sufficiency in God, and he's an ever-present help in the midst of ever-present problems. The book title is Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection, newly published by Salem Books, available to Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. I'm often asked uh, when I'm out about in town and people say, well, on KFAX, what would you say are some of the best theologians on the radio station? And without hesitation, I would put on that list uh, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and our guest today, Pastor Philip DeCourcy. We're going to get back to more of our conversation with Philip DeCourcy as this edition of Lifeline continues right after this. This, of course, an update on traffic for you, 515, and the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center as we say good evening to Michael Bennett. Hey, Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You recognize him. He is speaker on Know the Truth, heard every Monday through Friday at 12.30 p.m. Great way to spend a lunchtime. He is Pastor Philip DeCourcy. 
He is the author of a new book also called Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection. One of the things that folks may not know about you up here in the Bay Area, Pastor DeCourcy, and that is when you lived in Northern Ireland, you were a police officer, specifically in Belfast. And I was struck early in the book, um, you talk about the fact that particularly in those days, in the, the 1970s, this was a constant threat. Uh, a lot of people that are familiar with the history of the fighting that went on um, in Northern Ireland know that during that time it was particularly brutal and your life could be at risk whether you were in the uniform or out of uniform. And yet you write in the book, and I, I, this strikes me as just so much getting to the heart of the matter here, the balance that we need as Christians when it comes to this matter of, of, of problems and travail and persecution versus that sense of, of peace and joy and resting in God. And that is, you say, and I quote here, genuine security is not found in the absence of danger, but in the presence of God. Wow, that really turns things on its head, doesn't it? It does. And it's, it's a truism. It's truth. And it was something I, I learned by experience. I mean, as you, you alluded to, um, for the six years I was in the RUC from 1982 to 1988, um, Interpol, the international policing agency, reckoned that the policing role in Northern Ireland was the most dangerous role in the world. I mean, El Salvador came second to Northern Ireland. That's how bad it was. We could be shot on duty. Um, you know, there was political assassinations. There was bombings going on. Uh, but we were as mo- more likely to be killed off duty. Uh, I carried my weapon wherever I went. I, I varied my routine, didn't set myself up for, as a target. I checked my car regularly. One of the favorite bo- uh, weapons of the IRA was a, a cassette case with a magnet under your car, p- pound of Semtex explosives with a mercury tilt switch. So as your car went up or down, uh, a gradient, it, it went off. So there's this, there was this kind of suffocating sense that, hey, I could die at any moment. And so that's the point of that little statement, um, Craig, that, that, hey, security's not the absence of danger. It's unrealistic. You know, man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. There's but a step between us and death. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. This is a broken world. It's marked by evil. It lies in the lap of the wicked one. So, so security can never be this idea, oh, I want to get to a place where there's no threats, no trouble. You know, I think even in our own country, when tragedies happen and natural disasters, we can oversell the response, well, if we did this, you know, if we passed this gun law, or we did this, this would stop this. Well, I'm all for common sense solutions, don't get me wrong. But that's an oversell. As long as we live in this body and on this earth, Threats and, and, and trials are never far away. So security's got to be an inside job. And so the point is, security's not the absence of danger. Security's the presence of God. Um, in Philippians 4, I deal with that in the book about prayer. After praying and going to God and unburdening our hearts about that which threatens us or troubles us, we're promised that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The Greek word garrison, Roman soldiers guarded that city. And the peace of God will guard the heart and mind of the Christian. So the point to notice in that text is peace is the presence of God within. 
a sense of shalom, to say with the hymn writer, it's well with my soul. It's to know that nothing will separate me from the love of God. It's to understand that all things work together for good. Now, I can't control the outside world. That's just too big a problem for me. That's going to take Jesus' return. But the peace of God can guard my heart so that I don't live in a state of panic or anxiety. And I thresh that out, um, Craig, um, on the streets of Belfast during the troubles of Northern Ireland. Security is not the absence of danger. It's the presence of God. It's knowing that God is with us, whatever we're going through. Is part of the challenge here in your perspective, Pastor DeCourcy, the fact that perhaps much of the modern church today, and again, I want to be careful not to paint a broad brush here because I understand that there are many fellow believers in many countries and many places that really understand and have a balance on this. But I wonder if uniquely to the Western church, there has been a lack of proper view of, of perhaps understanding of the purpose of suffering and a lack of understanding of where we really sit in the timeline of eternity. Absolutely. Look, as Americans, we love our creature comforts, and in some ways there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that has seeped into American theology, and it has produced the prosperity gospel. It has produced this idea that, you know, I can be exempt from life's trials and troubles. No, there's a theology of suffering. That's one of the chapters in my book. Peter writes to those in Asia who are being persecuted, and he says, don't think it a strange thing, or don't be surprised when, when suffering tries your faith. And, and God, God has got many purposes in suffering, but God uses suffering in the life of the church to grow the church, to, to put his glory on display, to, to show that the power is not in us, but in the Holy Spirit. And we've got to rethink our theology. As I said, I'm not going looking trouble. But as a Christian, trouble will find me. And, and, and I've got to realize, unless I'm, you know, in the means of it, we're also warned in the Bible not to suffer because of, you know, poor behavior, um, just being too aggressive in our, in our approaches to others. But if the suffering has come to us because we look too much like the Lord Jesus, and therefore since they persecuted him, they'll persecute us, we've got to embrace that because our faith will grow. Our experience of God will deepen. In fact, you mentioned the fires. I mean, the, the image of fire is used throughout the Bible. Uh, when you go through the fire, you know, he'll be with us. But in the New Testament, Peter talks about the fiery trial of your faith. And that's not a literal fire, although in some cases it was for those who were burned in the Garden of Nero around the time of Peter's writing. But generally he's just saying, hey, fire tempers metal. It removes, you know, the impurities, the, the alloys, and, and steel. You look at a, 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 you know, a steel factory and the furnaces that, 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 you know, produce the steel that's perfect and strong. Persecution does that. And therefore, we're not to be surprised by it. We're even to submit to it in God's providence and allow our faith to be tested and grow. And you know what? When the world sees us handling suffering in a gracious manner, in a hopeful way, we're reflecting the crucified Savior that we follow. So, yeah, got to do a better job at thinking through suffering. And as I said, I have a, I have a chapter in my book called Take Cover in a Life Guarded by a Realistic View of Suffering. 
One of the thoughts, and I, I certainly am not recommending to listeners that we, we look to the British Home Guard for theology, but <laughs> there was a poster that was very popular uh, during the Battle of London, during the, the Blitz, that was created by the uh, the British um, Home Guard that was called, yeah. and we've seen this everywhere, keep calm and carry on. And I think perhaps that's a, that's a good note to end our conversation on, because it really gives us the perspective about the fact that as we are in the midst of the, the battle and the storm and whatever might be challenging us and how however we might be buffeted, not only is it important to be mindful of who the real enemy is here, but also to be mindful that an unshakable trust in God will give us the fortitude we need to keep on calm and carry on. That's, I mean, that's the last chapter in my book. My, my mother, as a, as a child, would run to the earth shelters in Belfast as the Germans come over bombing the shipyards in Glasgow and London and in Belfast. And, and I have actually one of those posters in my home. And Psalm 46 gets us there. God is a refuge and a strength and a present help in time of trouble. Be still and know that I am God. And in that sense, God is our shelter. Uh, when life implodes, we can keep calm, knowing that he is sovereign. He'll give us the grace and the peace to go through this. And I love to close um, a quote by, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Faith is a refusal to panic. If we truly have faith, in a sovereign God who has loved us to the extent of giving a son, has given us the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the great and exceeding promises of God. We should have faith that refuses to panic because we can keep calm and carry on by taking cover in God. We know in whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able. I think of many listening right now that are either in the midst of that storm or you know someone who is that really is struggling, trying to find this this balance. Um, just in time for the holidays, this would be a great gift idea. The book called Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection. It's not one of these 10-foot-high books that is going to take you eight months to read, but it's a book that's packed with great, straightforward practical theological insights, and uh, one that I think will help open your eyes, give you a deeper understanding of what's behind all of this business of faith and persecution, uh, equally as understanding the perfect love that casts out all fair fear and the redemptive suffering uh, that uh, can be found in uh, and toward spiritual growth. Take Cover, Finding Peace in God's Protection, written by our guest today, Pastor Philip DeCourcy. The broadcast, Know the Truth, Monday through Friday, 12.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. You can check out more information and other resources available to you online by going to KTT for Know the Truth, KTT.org. Pastor DeCourcy, thanks so much. We're still getting comments, by the way, about your uh, visit here to the Bay Area at the annual Pastors Appreciation Luncheon. So, again, thanks so much for the time, and uh, Godspeed. Hey, love it. Enjoyed my visit up there. And as I said to my congregation, this would be a great gift for someone in law enforcement or in our military. Yeah, absolutely so. So, folks, think about that. You can order the book online through Know the Truth website at ktt.org or get it at any Bay Area Christian bookstore. 531 from KFAX. And we transition now to traffic. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael Bennett's got the latest. Michael. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Now, so you thought the elections would be over on November the 6th, huh? Well, they continue to go on as the counting continues in states like Florida. Often wondered why we don't send Amazon down there. I mean, Jeff Bezos can keep track of millions of packages all across the country. There's got to be a better way. It's certainly, I think, as we have watched the outcome, and, and for many, certainly from the conservative perspective, watched the march towards a bluism in many states have been a point of frustration for many, and a lot of it, I think, also goes to this notion of, I don't know, what seems to be a battle being set up between Washington, D.C. and the rest of the country, or perhaps more specifically, as my next guest would state, a battle between the states and the federal level, or maybe even more accurately put, the question of whether or not Washington, D.C. gets rights or actually the people get rights. He's the author of a brand new book called Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again. He is the host of the syndicated talk show, The Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., a great alternative to a lot of the crazy talking head programs out there because he actually gets down to real brass tacks when it comes to where our nation is, where it used to be from our founders' perspective, and most importantly, where it needs to head. Bob Zadek, great to have you on the program. Glad to be back again, Craig. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, let's talk a bit about this. And, and what is, I think, at the real core, I alluded to this notion that we've seen a bit of a, a shift taking place, certainly between the parties. But I think, as your new book suggests, there's been a bigger shift that's taken place, and that is that we have seen a shift from what had been the power of the states, or more specifically, the power of the people, now seemingly being concentrated in Washington, D.C. Give us some insights. First off, how do we even get here? Well, the founders uh, envisioned, of course, uh, split government. By that, I mean uh, separate but equal powers, both in Washington, D.C. Actually, it was first in New York and then in Washington, D.C. New York was our first capital for a very brief period of time. That's where Washington uh, took his oath of office uh, on, on the steps of the federal building. So we started with a system where most of the day to day power over Americans resided in the states. The states had uh, and historically have always had what is known as the police power. The police power is far more than power over police, but it certainly includes that. Police power, as the term is used in this conversation, means control over the health, welfare, safety, education, well-being of the population. All of those concepts were none of Washington's business. Washington was delegated certain specific powers, as we all know. Uh, Foreign policy, uh, currency, bankruptcy laws, for some strange reason, was federalized, uh, foreign affairs, and interstate commerce. That was the picture. All the power resided in the states, except where the power can more efficiently and more effectively be done by Washington, such as maintaining an army. army. That was the original vision, and that worked pretty gosh darn well for a very long time. Most citizens consider them to be citizens of a state first, and the United States second. That's how it was envisioned, through a series of court decisions, uh, in my opinion, wrong court decisions, but doesn't matter what I think, uh, a 
a lot of legislation, such as the 17th Amendment, which in 1913 changed the election of senators from indirect election through states uh, in up until 1913, senators were elected by state houses, not by the people. That changed with the one of the worst amendments of all 27, which is the 17th Amendment, that made senators popularly elected. With all of those type of decisions, uh, power eroded and devolved from the states to, to Washington. So now we are confronted with one size fits all. And that, by the way, as we may explore during the show, that contributes to the lack of civility, as we discussed prior in prior shows you and I had together on your show. Uh, that contributes to the tribalism, to the divisiveness, to the anger. It all traces directly to a devolution of power from local control, where citizens feel they have a say, to Washington, where citizens know they have no say whatever. And when you are powerless, you get angry. And amazingly, this sense of Washington, D.C. being remote and aloof, this is not just because geographically it's situated over 3,000 miles away from California. I mean, this is pretty much a feeling across the country. And, and it's interesting to note, you talk about this in the book, no taxation without representation. That was the battle cry back then. And ironically, we're back to that place again, seemingly, where it feels as if the local citizens are not being heard. And there's all of this sort of uh, top down versus what should be the bottom up concentration of power. And when you when you remind us of no taxation without representation, let's remember that the citizens in the 13 colonies who, of course, revolted, uh, were as far geographically from London as California is from Washington. Hmm, what does that tell us? <laughs> Nothing's changed in 300 years. Nothing has changed, Greg. <laughs> yeah. You're exactly right. Let's talk a bit about um, the the major paradigm shift of power here. This is certainly not something that's happened overnight. Power shifts never happen in a, in a vacuum, but we've seen this happen. We've seen Congress, we're seemingly today, and I think if we did a most people would agree that it seems as if they do the bidding of lobbyists and financial supporters, uh, but none of the real true representation of the people. That was never the intent with this two-year cycle of Congress, with basically a people's house as originally envisioned and articulated in the Constitution by our founding fathers. So what happened? Where did the shift happen? How did the shift start? Well, one of the most interesting and least written about shifts was something that happened kind of by atrophy. When the country was founded, a representative in the House of Representatives represented 40,000 voters. And Cong uh, the founders were determined and they strongly believed, as Madison did and most of the others, that that relationship of one representative for 40,000 voters in the House sounded about right. And for a while, as the population grew, so grew the number of members of the House. Along the way, that stopped. So as a result, right now, you could have a citizen today 
who is one of three or four hundred thousand voters electing a member of the House. And of course, when you have that relationship, nobody has any personal relationship with their member of the House, doesn't know anything about them. Their only contact is through a heavily staged and orchestrated town hall, which only happens around election time. So our representatives are strangers to us, except what we see on television. They are much of a stranger uh, as a pop culture figure or a sports figure. They are total strangers. They know nothing about who they represent. They are just election machines. And that is one of the serious, serious defects. Now, compare that with your whatever town you live in, compare that statistic with how much you know about your local representative who represents you in town government, in county government, and maybe even in state government. You are a lot closer to that representative who is representing you. That word is not random. They represent you. Instead, we have in Washington representatives who know nothing about the people they represent except what they read in a statistical printout. I am not a digit on a printout. I'm a human being, and I have no sense that my representative knows about me or cares about me except as I am disclosed in a printout. I've always found it fascinating when uh, ahead of election time, many organizations out there will publish these voter guides and they are designed to help you get to know your congressman, your member of the United States Senate or uh, whatever seat they might be in. So you can understand more about what they believe in and what they stand for and how they vote. Get to know my congressman. Wait a minute. Who's representing who here? And as Bob Zadek, I think uh, uniquely and uh, most poignantly points out um, the failure here is that there's so much emphasis and it's almost as if this is Madison Avenue marketing that we need to get to know our congressmen when the reverse ought to be true that the Congress people ought to be getting to know us otherwise how can you represent people that you do not even know New book called Power to the States How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again we're going to take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author, syndicated talk show host, Bob Zadek. By the way, you can check out Bob, his Sunday morning program at bobzadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K. You'll find a list of other resources there, books certainly, as well as podcasts of previous programs. Bobzadek.com. The show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. All right, a brief time out. When we come back... Ben Franklin had an observation about what happens when people understand they can vote themselves money. What happens when Congress figures out it can redistrict itself? <laughs> that is the conversation with Bob Zadek continues. All right, just about uh, 13, 14 minutes away from the top of the hour. Let's get the latest KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Bob Zadek, my guest. The book called Power to the States, How Federalism 2.0 Can Make America Governable Again. The new book, by the way, available through Bob's website. Check it out at bobzadek.com. That's Bob Zadek, Z-A-D-E-K.com. There is the famous quote. A lot of folks are familiar with it. 
came from Benjamin Franklin, who said, when the people find that they can vote themselves money, that will be the end of the republic. I wonder if we could add a, a, a brief codicil to that and say, and, and, and likewise, when politicians figure out that they've got the power to redistrict and to gerrymander, uh, they will be sure to guarantee themselves a future in Washington, D.C. I, I wonder toward that end, again, and this is the, that notion of the, the top-down versus the bottom-up uh, and vice versa form of governance, how problematic do you see all of that? Oh, my God. The problem of gerrymandering is huge. And and even to call it a problem, there will be some disagreement among the political class as to whether gerrymandering is a problem or a tool. But let's take a step back. Step back and let's talk about what gerrymandering is and why it is either sinister and corrupt or, oh, well, politics as usual. Gerrymandering gets its name from... A very interesting founder, Eldridge Gary, uh, G-E-R-R-Y. He was member of the founding class, a very, very smart politician, uh, governor of, I believe, Connecticut during the founding era. And interestingly enough, he refused to sign the Constitution because he felt that the Constitution gave too much power to Washington. He was one of three of the founding class, one of the three of the 55 who met in Philadelphia to draft the Constitution, but didn't like the outcome and refused to sign it. Well, when Eldridge Geary was the governor of, I believe, Connecticut, he was given a picture or or a drawing of an election district that was drawn to assure a politician would get reelected. And what that means is you if you know where all of your people live the streets they live on and the districts they live in, you draw a district that includes mostly your guys and very few of the other guys' voters. That way you're assured of being reelected. Well, Eldridge Geary, when he looked at that bill, which he signed, by the way, he commented that it looked like a salamander. And Eldridge Geary's salamander became Gary Mandering. That is the interesting history of the word. And that has been with us so long as we have been a country. Now, what that means that if the if Eldridge Geary's uh, party could have done that in this in the end of the 18th century with no data to speak of except what they guessed. Imagine what politicians can do today with all of the data they have available. They know how every member of every household feels and votes and demographics. They can do it pretty accurately. The result of that is, Craig, the result is that statistically it is generally accepted that about 98 or 97 percent of the seats in the House of Representatives are generally uncontested, which means don't bother to vote. Now, that is a higher percentage of uncontested seats than in the Russian Politburo. So our election in the House of Representatives, for the most part, 
is an empty ritual because it's been predetermined by politicians. Now, it's determined every 10 years. The new census results come in and the governor and the party in power gets to redraw the lines in the way that they want. So basically, when you go into the census every 10 years and you simply look at which who are the Democratic governors and the Republican governors and which state houses are in control of what body, you can predict what's going to happen in the House of Representatives pretty accurately for the next 10 years. So going to the polls is an empty ritual. You're better off going to the movies. <laughs> well, and it, and it certainly points to the notion that as we see, let's take, for example, a state like California, where there's a lot of moving and shifting, certainly changes de- demographically that can change racially demographically that can change in terms of income uh we've seen uh, for example parts of san francisco that five years ago were considered bottom of the rung impoverished they are considered extremely wealthy and so the ability to take that data information and all of the other information that they're able to compile on us and identify specifically where the support base is and where it's shifted to and redraw the district lines in order to give the party in control um, the leg up, so to speak, on the next election should set every American on their heels with great concern. Craig, it's it's impolite to correct your host, but I'm going to correct you when you said a state like California. Craig, there is no such thing. There is no state like California. <laughs> Forgive me for publicly correcting you, but I couldn't let it go by. Yeah, no, you know, Second no, of correction, all, correction received. <laughs> and as to as to California, uh, California deserves honorable mention. California, about four or five years ago, tried to do something about gerrymandering, and they formed a redistricting commission. They tried to do so objectively. They had judges involved and a a very pretty clean process. And they tried to redraw election districts in a way that ignored politics. And they did a reasonable job. So California maybe did a little better than most states. Of course, in California, it doesn't matter because there are no Republicans. So it's kind of a waste of taxpayer money to draw a district when the whole state only has Democrats. Um, Because why? who are you excluding? There's nobody to exclude. But put that anomaly aside, California at least tried to draw election districts in a more objective way. Now, Craig, there's another very interesting issue. Uh, Assuming you don't support, assuming you find offensive the gerrymandering of districts, and if I would ask you, Craig, it's easy for you and I to criticize because we tend to be a little bit cynical about the political class. So assuming... You were the redistricting czar. The question I pose to you as a representative of our audience, what should the rule be? What if you say the rule can't be to get the good your guys reelected? If that's not the rule, then what should the rule be? And that's kind of a hard question. If you say, well, it should be geographic. So you draw a line that's like, 
the geographic boundaries of a county. But the trouble is, Craig, within a county, there are rich people, poor people, immigrants, um, native born. There are blacks and Jews and, and Hispanics and Chinese. It's an, it's all kinds of people. So some people will be in a voting minority no matter what kind of a box you or shape you draw. So while you and I can criticize gerrymandering as being in the self-interest of the politician, the issue of what should replace it is if our listeners think about it, it's a bit more challenging. So the fix is kind of hard, Uh, but it certainly shouldn't be to keep your people in office. That's for sure. Robert, I very much get the sense that this is going to be a series because we've got so much more to dive into. We have literally just scratched the surface of this, and uh, I'm going to uh, dangle the carrot out there for listeners and say if you want to go a little deeper, uh, and I urge you to do so, there's two easy ways to do that. One is to check out Bob's show, the Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings uh, locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 8.60 a.m. on your radio dial. That's uh, 8.60 a.m. The Answer. He's there holding court so to speak, every Sunday morning. Resources available, too. If you have friends live out of state and other areas, want to get them uh, tuned into Bob's program, you can get a complete listing of all the affiliates that carry the Bob Zadek Show, as well as other resources, copies of the new book, Power to the States, as well as podcasts of previous shows by going to his website, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Bob, we got to get, get you back, maybe right after we get through the Thanksgiving holiday, because uh, the there's there's some historical value here that I think people need to be aware of to sort of put things in the proper context. We we talk a lot about making America great again, uh, but I think many of us would argue that what has made America in the shape that it's in today is because it has become ungovernable. And a lot of this is because of these paradigm shifts away from the, the founding father's vision for how the nation should have run and did for a short period of time. And in particular, I want to spend some time really diving deep into this question of what exactly is federalism? How does it serve us? How is it broken apart? And how do we get it back again? Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. KTRB, The Answer. And we appreciate Bob's time and, as always, um, urge you to check out his program. All right. We're a little late here, so we're going to. Get you updated on some traffic. Is that the game plan here ahead of some news? All right, let's do that. And uh, we'll head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett, what's going on over there? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 